You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. There are probably two questions on your brain right now. The first one is, who was Mungo Park? And the second one, who would name their child Mungo? Both are legitimate questions, but let's tackle the second one first. So why would someone name their child Mungo? Well, there is a Saint Mungo. He is the patron saint of the city of Glasgow, Scotland. The focus of our podcast, Mungo Park, was born in Scotland to a very religious family, so that he was bestowed with the name is not crazy. Of course, the most famous Mungo is St. Mungo's Hospital of Magical Maladies and Injuries from the Harry Potter universe. It is the home of disgraced wizard Gilderoy Lockhart. The series author, J.K. Rowling, is of Scottish ancestry and resides in Scotland. Okay, my nerdiness has been fully revealed. Enough of the name Mungo. On to our first question. Who was Mungo Park? Mungo Park was, as noted, a Scotsman. He would become famous for his exploration of the Niger River in West Africa in the late 17 and early 1800s. The account of his first journey would help kick off an era of European exploration in Africa, and it would also help create the image of the white explorer plunging into the depths of the dark continent. So, let's get on with our story. Mungo Park was born on September 11, 1771, in Shelkirkshire, Scotland. He came from a large family, the seventh of 13 siblings. His parents were well-off farmers, and Mungo would get a good education. His father wanted him to go into the ministry, but Mungo decided he was destined for other things. At age 14, he would become an apprentice to a surgeon, Thomas Anderson, in Selkirk. He would later marry Anderson's daughter, Allison. In 1788, Park enrolled in the University of Edinburgh, where he would be put on the path to becoming a doctor. He would study medicine and botany and natural history, and he was known as a curious young man, always reading and always learning. In 1792, after graduating, he would sign on as an assistant surgeon with the East India Company on board the ship Worcester. And in February 1793, he sailed to the province of Benkulin, today known as Benkulu, on the southwest coast of Sumatra in Indonesia. It is not known much about his year overseas, but when Park returned, he would write a scientific paper describing eight new Sumatran fish. Probably not the most exciting thing in the world, but for a 23-year-old kid, it was likely a pretty big deal. And it revealed his scientific nature, as well as his keen observational skills, all of which would come in handy while in Africa. So with Park back in England in 1794, his brother-in-law, James Dixon, a botanist, introduced Park to Sir Joseph Banks. Banks was a noted naturalist and botanist who had some serious exploration cred, as he had circumnavigated the globe with James Cook 25 years earlier. Banks was also a member of the Association for the Promoting of the Discovery of the Interior Parts of Africa, or better known as the African Association. The African Association had been formed in 1788, at the time, Africa loomed as the great unknown in the world, especially to Europeans. 
The lands of America and Asia and South America, they were claimed, although not fully explored. So Africa offered a unique opportunity, hence the formation of the African Association. It was a sort of adventurous club, although they didn't do the actual adventuring. They got others to do that for them. The association itself was dominated by upper-class men of London. It strove for scientific knowledge, the desire to learn about the geography, the people, and the places that were mysteries to most Europeans. Of course, the association members were also interested in economic opportunities as well. Many, no doubt, cloaked their economic interest in the guise of scientific exploration, but it was no secret that there were those who desired access to the untouched markets of Africa. I also want to note that many members of the association strove for the abolition of slavery, a movement that had been growing in England in the latter part of the 1700s. But there was also a faction that had significant financial interests in the Caribbean and America that relied on slave labor. Thus, Park would later have to find a balance in his writings so as not to anger those on either side of the issue. The first goal established by the African Association was to explore West Africa, and specifically the Niger River, because, surprisingly, no one in Europe knew exactly where the Niger was, despite the fact that it is 2,600 miles long. And if you could locate the Niger, you could then discover the legendary city of Timbuktu, the City of Gold. Man, these people just can't get enough of these lost City of Gold tales. Anyhow. Timbuktu was a city that was only legend to Europeans. It had risen to prominence in the 13th century as the key trading location of the Mali Empire in West Africa, and the main item of trade was gold. But no European had ever been to Timbuktu, so finding the mysterious city was high on their list of to-dos. But as I mentioned, they needed to find the Niger first. They knew of the Niger, they just didn't know exactly where it was. The reason is that the Niger takes one of the most unusual routes of any major river in the world. It is a sort of boomerang-like shape that confused geographers for centuries. The source of the river, the Guinea Highlands, is actually only about 150 miles inland from the Atlantic. But the Niger heads northeast, instead of west, and into the desert. At Timbuktu, it turns southeast before finally dumping out into the Niger Delta, and then the Atlantic in what is modern-day Nigeria. I recommend looking at explorerspodcast.com to see a map of the Niger and the lands around it if you want to get a better feel for where we are going on this podcast. What the Europeans did know about the Niger was that it was a major highway of commerce between the kingdoms of West Africa, a region now dominated by the Moors. The Moors were Arabs who had crossed the Sahara Desert centuries before to establish the trade routes back to the Middle East and the Mediterranean. For centuries, it was gold that lured merchants and traders to the region, but by the late 1700s, it was the lucrative slave trade that dominated the area. The initial expedition sponsored by the African Association had met with limited success. The African environment, like any tropical environment, was difficult on Europeans. A simple illness could wipe out half an expedition, and the lands of Africa were filled with a thousand tribes and an equal number of languages. It was a dangerous and confusing and unhealthy place. In 1790, an Irishman in the British Army, Major Daniel Houghton, undertook to explore the region from the mouth of the Gambia River on behalf of the association. He was to penetrate inland and find the Niger. After some initial success, Houghton ran into trouble. He would ultimately be lured into the desert by some Moors, claiming that they could take him to Timbuktu. There they stole all that he had and abandoned him. At that point, he either died of starvation or was killed. So the association was looking to follow up on Houghton's journey, but finding takers was difficult. I mean, a white man heading into Africa with little support was not an attractive gig. The Moorish kingdoms were outright hostile to Europeans. They were infidels, after all. 
But more importantly, they did not take kindly to anyone who might threaten their incredibly lucrative slave trade operation. It's important to realize that exploring West Africa wasn't about plunging into empty spaces. West Africa was filled with lots and lots of people. Yes, there would be physical challenges, but just as important, there would be the challenges of dealing with other people. Every day, you would come upon people with different customs, different religions, different languages, and different mindsets. It would be an enormous challenge for anyone. And so that leads us to young Dr. Mungo Park. Like so many people who became explorers, he seems to have gotten the bug to find and discover while in the Far East. He wasn't interested in just sitting around Scotland and tending to the needs of the local villagers. Africa was a way to scratch the itch that he had acquired and garner some fame at the same time. Thus, in September of 1794, Park offered his services to the African Association. He would be supported by Sir Joseph Banks and ultimately selected to lead the next expedition to find the Niger River. Park departed for Africa on May 22, 1795, from Portsmouth, England, on the trading ship Endeavour, which was heading to the Gambia River region to trade for beeswax and ivory. I want to mention that the story we are going to hear today is almost straight from the source himself, Mungo Park. When he returned to Europe after his upcoming expedition, Park wrote a popular account of his journey. His writings were really quite good. He had a gift for mixing his many observations and insights with storytelling. Thus, he crafted a tale, an epic struggle of a man in the unknown. His chronicles would be one of the more entertaining produced in the era, and it would become the standard other explorers would strive for when recounting their journeys. But I want to stress that Park and his publishers wrote a book to sell to the public. His publishers didn't want to depict the horrors of the slave trade in too great a depth, and Park later said some of the worst things he had seen were not included in the book. And like any good story, Park created a good hero himself, and a good villain, in this case, the Moors. Anyhow, those are just a few things I want you to think about as we recount the travels of Mungo Park. Park and his ship, the Endeavour, would reach the Gambia River on June 21, 1795, then sail upriver to the town of Gillifrey. As Park moved up the Gambia, there were villages and trading posts along the way. He would find Europeans on the river, trading in gold and ivory, but mostly slaves. On July 5th, he arrived at the trading post of Pisania, about 200 miles upriver from the Atlantic Ocean. Pisania was inhabited solely by the British and their African servants. Park's contact there was a man named Dr. John Laidley. Dr. Laidley and the post were key elements in the slave trading operation in the region, and the man would be an essential aid to Park. He had connections up and down the river, and many people owed him favors and money. Pisania was located in the lands of the Mandingo, or Mandinka as they are known today. The Mandinka are not a kingdom, they are an ethnic group of African people. Park felt that to gain knowledge of a land and the people, you had to speak their language. So one of the first things he did was to set about to learn the Mandinka tongue. It is a stark contrast to the attitude of many Westerners, who often saw the natives in their language and their culture as barbaric, even subhuman. Again, something unique about Park. Unfortunately for Mungo, he had arrived right in the middle of the rainy season, which is particularly bad between July and September. And with the mention of the rainy season, it is a good time to stop and talk a moment about the weather in the area. Where Park was, and where he was heading, was extraordinarily hot, and depending on where he ends up, it will be very wet at times too. Example, Banjal, the modern-day capital of Gambia, sits on the Atlantic Ocean at the head of the Gambia River. It averages almost half an inch of rain a day during the month of August. And you want hot? The city of Timbuktu, one of Park's destinations, has an average high temperature of 108 degrees in the month of May. 
But the rainy season brought not just oppressive heat and constant rain, but illness. By the end of July, Park would have a high fever and become delirious. He would spend almost the entire month of August laying in bed. Park would finally be able to walk once September rolled around, but his fever would come and go for weeks. When he was able to move about, he began to take botanical excursions into the area. From the very start, Park would be an excellent observer. He would detail just about anything that he found of interest, the plants, the wildlife, the people, all of which make his writings so good. As Park was recovering from his sickness, he also began to plot his journey east into the African interior. His plan was to follow the Gambia River east, roughly 30 or so miles, before heading cross-country in search of the Niger. As we noted earlier, Park isn't traveling into sparsely populated areas. These are kingdoms of tens of thousands of people. There will be towns and cities and villages. Also, commerce is vibrant in this area, particularly the slave trade. Thus, there will be roads to follow, and there will be people to travel with. The greatest obstacle Park faced was that there are so many kingdoms in the region. With every step, he is going to have to negotiate passage through these lands. Also, many of these kingdoms are in conflict, and the situation he was heading into was very fluid. A friend one day may be an enemy the next. He would need to display tact and wisdom as he headed east. By October, the rainy season was at its end, and Park reported that the river would drop by as much as a foot in a day. Still, it would take many weeks for him to regain his strength after his long illness. Park would finally depart from Pisania on December 2, 1795. To accompany him, he hired an African, a former slave from Jamaica who has made his way back to his homeland. His name was Johnson. Johnson spoke English as well as Mandinka. Park also brought along an African youth named Demba. Demba was a slave who had been promised his freedom by Dr. Laley upon his return if he served Park well. In addition to English and Mandinka, Demba spoke the language of an inland people, the Serawulis. Park would have a horse for himself and a donkey for his two companions. He kept his baggage light, a change of clothes, a musket, a sextant, a compass, an umbrella, a thermometer, two pair of pistols, plus beads and tobacco and amber, which he would use for trade. He brought provisions for just two days, because again, he and his companions would procure such items along the way. Park, Johnson, and Demba would begin their trip in a small caravan of travelers heading east. These were people who simply joined together for safety purposes. Their number included several African slavers, or sladies as they were called. There was also a blacksmith named Tammy. Tammy was a bushreen, a term used for Mandinka people who were Muslims. All of these people were heading east for one reason or another. As noted, Park was heading into the lands of the Mandinka. He estimated that three-quarters of the population were slaves. How accurate that percentage is, we don't know. But slavery was common in much of West Africa, and it wasn't just the Mandinka who practiced slavery. Virtually every ethnic group was part of the institution. The most common ways to become a slave were to be born to enslaved parents or to be captured in war. But there were plenty of other ways to become a slave as well. A family could sell a child to buy food, or a person could be put into chains for failing to pay debts, that sort of thing. The slave trade had boomed with the need for slaves in the Americas in the 16 and 1700s, it was now the region's greatest export, even more so than gold and ivory. But we need to understand that the slave trade wasn't just for the Americas. Slaves were everywhere. So someone like the Moors could capture Africans in one part of the continent and then sell them to a different ethnic group, who in turn would sell them to another. In fact, it was commonplace for a slave to be sold many times over, each time he or she was sold being further and further away from their homeland. This prevented the slave from running away, since there was little chance of surviving in a place that they didn't speak the language or have friends or family. Regarding the Mandinka people, Park noted that Islam had made inroads with them, 
but that the Africans were mostly pagans, still worshipping the religion of their ancestors. But even those who accepted Islam, the Bushreen, often mixed the religion with local beliefs. Park also noted that polygamy was commonplace in Africa, both with the Africans as well as the Moors. In Park's writings, he did not just talk about the Mandinkas, but there were other ethnic groups as well, including the Filups and the Jalofs and the Fulas. Park recorded the characteristics of each, noting things such as their customs and their traits, not to mention their language. In his journal, he wrote down how to count from 1 to 10 in each of the native tongues. As Park moved inland, most of the people he encountered were Africans, but the further east he went, the more he would come into contact with the Moors. The Moors, who I have mentioned several times, were Muslims who had come mostly from North Africa and were of Arab and Berber descent. They had crossed the Sahara and set up their kingdoms in West and Central Africa. So, Park was on the move east. Dr. Laley would travel with him for a day before returning to his home in Pisania. And from that point on, Park was on his own. He would not see another European for two years. The first kingdom that Park entered was called Woolley, and the first city he would come to was Medina, the capital. Park took note of Medina, as he would of many other cities and towns and villages. It had about 800 to 1,000 homes with walls of clay. There was also a fence with outward pointed spikes surrounding the city. He pronounced it typical of the region. He would talk about the people, the crops being grown, corn was common in the area, as well as the weather, and pretty much anything else that caught his interest. Early on, Park's curiosity was on display when one evening he spent three hours smoking tobacco with the Africans and listening to the stories of the Mandinka. It was a very Mungo Park-like thing to do. As with many of the kingdoms in the region, it was customary for someone like Park to visit the king of any land that he entered. So while in Medina, he presented himself at the king's court and met the king, a man named Jada. The king had been friendly to Major Houghton when he had passed through his domain several years before. And at this point, Jada tried to dissuade Park from going on, for he was certain Park would meet the same fate as the now-deceased explorer. But Park was resolute. He would go forward. The king gave him a guide to accompany him through his lands. And next, we move on to the mumbo-jumbo. Yes, we are literally going to talk about mumbo-jumbo next. It's kind of cool, too. On December 8, 1795, Park arrived in a town called Kolor. Here, he witnessed a strange ritual that was in process in the town, the mumbo-jumbo. It seems a man in the village was having domestic issues with one or more of his wives, and he could not keep the peace in his household. In such cases, a mumbo-jumbo was called upon. Basically, what happened was a man was put in a sort of costume. Park called it a bugbear, and he became an anonymous minister of justice of sorts. When it got dark, the costume man, likely the husband or someone he had instructed, entered the town and all the inhabitants gathered around a central tree called a bentang. There was singing and dancing, and the ceremony went on for hours. Eventually, the mumbo, as the character was called, would call out the offending party or parties, and the person was tied to a post and scourged by the mumbo with a rod as punishment. The mumbo-jumbo was, therefore, devised to humiliate and punish wives who got out of line, according to their husbands. And thus, we have the term mumbo-jumbo, which is derived from this description provided by Park. I thought it was kind of cool to hear that, so I wanted to include it. Plus, it shows the detail and the interest Park displayed in the African people and their customs. A little more about the African people. Park would generally find only good things to say about them. He found them industrious and friendly. He specifically refutes many of the stereotypes that were held by Europeans. In fact, Park would find many of the Mandinka people so friendly that it was sort of annoying. He would come to a village and the people, many of whom had never seen a white man, wanted to meet him and hear about his travels. The locals would have ceremonies to welcome him, 
and they would entertain and feed him, despite the fact that sometimes he just wanted to move on or go to sleep. Several times Park will note that he will find more kindness and decency in the simplest of people rather than the kings and the lords. Park and his caravan would move on from the Gambia River and at the same time go from the Woolly Kingdom to that of Bandu. On December 9th, Park hired three African elephant hunters as guides and as protectors. The King of Woolly had provided Park with guides and protection during his stay there, but he was in a new kingdom and that meant new risks. The elephant hunters not only discouraged any attacks from bandits, but they knew where to find water and shelter. And it is important to know that it was getting very dry, and the ability to access fresh water was crucial to the caravan. Also, one thing Park had learned from the journals of the late Major Houghton was that it was common for the local kings and their officials to extract taxes and gifts, meaning extort them of things of value. Park would begin to hide items, just in case the situation arose. He would even start putting journal entries into his large hat for safekeeping ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly brake kits led lights exhaust kits turbochargers bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Park would reach the city of Fataconda, the capital of Bandu, on December 21st. He would meet the king, a man named Al-Mami. Park was wary of the man because he had heard that Almami had not been kind to Major Houghton. Indeed, Park found Almami to be a suspicious man. He couldn't believe that Park was just traveling to go see places. But in the end, the two left each other on good terms when the king took a shine to Park's blue coat with yellow buttons, and Park offered it up as a gift. That seems to have done the trick. King Almami would provide Park with provisions for his trip, including a small amount of gold, which was really nice to have for trading. The lands of Bandu, Park reported, were wooded and had fields with crops, primarily corn. Cattle and sheep were in abundance. But one item that was not common was salt. The scarcity of salt made it very valuable, and the Arab traders brought it to exchange for gold and slaves and ivory. It was around this time that Park also noted the increasing influence of Islam. There were more and more mosques and more and more people devoted to the religion than he had previously seen. The next kingdom had a niece was Kajanga. The people there were called Sarawulis. Park had not gone far into the lands when at the town of Jog, he was accosted by ten men on horseback. Park's elephant hunters had long left the caravan, so he had no guards in this new kingdom. The men informed Park that he had broken the law of the land by not paying duties and offering a gift to the king, and they said that everything he had was forfeit. And thus begins the systematic robbery of Mungo Park. Park had come to an alien world. In most of these places, he had no rights. In fact, in the areas dominated by the Moors, it was perfectly okay to rob and kill a man just because he was a Christian. 
Park was nearly alone and almost defenseless, and thus many people saw him as a way to make some money. Also, it is important to understand that these are not bandits and robbers doing this. They are government officials. They are not targeting the people with Park. They are targeting Park himself because they knew he carried items of value. So the horsemen would go through Park's belongings, taking whatever they wanted. He said he lost half of his goods, including his gold. As noted earlier, he had hidden some things of value, but it was not a lot. At this point, Demba and Johnson begged Park to turn back, saying that he was just inviting disaster. But Park wasn't going to let a little robbery impede him on his mission, so onward he would go. At this point, Park found himself reliant on the kindness of strangers. He couldn't trade any of his remaining valuables for food, because he feared that he would just end up being set upon again once people realized that he had stuff worth stealing. So he basically ended up begging for food, and at one point it was so bad, a slave took pity on him and gave him something to eat. And this is important to remember. Park does not have weeks and weeks of food. He needs to buy and trade for food, and when he can't do that, he is quickly going to run into trouble. So Park continued east. In late December, he would find himself robbed again. But he didn't have a lot remaining, but his situation was becoming more and more perilous. In early 1796, Park and his caravan came to the town of Tisi. The blacksmith, Tammy, who had accompanied Park on the entire journey thus far, had a reunion with his family, the first time he had been home in four years. Park had this to say about the emotional affair. Quote, I was fully convinced that whatever difference there is between the Negro and the European in the conformation of the nose and the color of the skin, there is none in the genuine sympathies and the characteristic feelings of our common nature. End quote. It is a nice sentiment, recognizing the shared traits of black and white. And this is the sort of thing that will be important. Park's details of his trip will humanize the Africans to many. These were just people. They were farmers and tradesmen and husbands and mothers and sons. Many in the abolitionist movement felt that this sort of thing helped turn people against slavery. The Africans weren't wild animals. These were humans. And taking them and ripping them from their homes and their families was supremely wrong. So this is the sort of thing that Park's honest account brought to the Western world. In the middle of January 1796, Park would venture to yet another kingdom and yet another king, Demba Sego Jala, the king of Kassan. The man was sympathetic to Park, but he warned him that the region was on the brink of war. Kassan and the other kingdoms, Kajanga, Karta, and Bambara, were mobilizing. Park reported that the king of Kassan had 4,000 warriors at his disposal, so this was not a simple skirmish. This was war. Of course, Park could have just turned back now, but as with so many explorers, he kept moving on. At this point, Park would tap into the accounts of Dr. Laidley and acquire more provisions for his journey. Unfortunately, he would lose much of what he got in the form of taxes and gifts to the various officials and rulers. Heading east, Park would find the countryside in turmoil as people were on the move, fleeing from the areas where war was expected. In February, Park would reach the town of Kimo, the capital of Karta. The king's name was Daisy Corberry. Yes, his name was Daisy, and it is one of the most awesome names I have ever heard a king have. King Daisy was good to Park, feeding and sheltering him, as well as offering a guide to the land's borders in the east. As a thank you, Park would send the king a pair of pistols, one of the few things he had left that he could give as a gift. Next for Park was the kingdom of Ludamar. As the crow flies, Ludamar was roughly 400 miles east, and a little north, of Park's starting point at Pisania. He had been traveling pretty much nonstop for three months. Ludamar would be a pivotal spot for Park. He was nearing the Sahara Desert, and Ludamar represented a land that was governed by the Moors, not the Africans. 
Everyone, including King Daisy, warned Park that it was a bad idea to go to Ludomar, but fate would make that decision for him, as war would break out in the lands he had just come from, and Park would find himself trapped between war in his rear and the moors in front of him. So forward he went. Park found the population in Ludomar to be mostly Africans, but they were under the rule of the moors. The king's name was Ali. Park would write that the moors held the black Africans in contempt, robbing and humiliating them as if they were slaves. Park would come to detest the Moors. He would find them bullies and thieves and murderers. His dislike of the Moors is kind of uncharacteristic of Park. He often seemed to find the good things in bad situations. The Moors' treatment of him was terrible, of course, so it's no wonder he does not like Ali or his people. But his descriptions of them in his book, Cunning and Duplicitous, are a little over the top, and they may have been influenced by his publisher. On March 1st, a band of Moors would rob Park. Then, a week later... Another group of Moors would arrive and take Park, Demba, and Johnson as captives. They would be brought to King Ali in the town of Benome. Many of the Moors treated Park as a curiosity, most of them never having seen a white man before, or a Christian. They wanted to touch his skin and count his toes. He endured this over and over, but he complied, because he really had no other choice. He was in a bad place. He could just not escape from Benome. He was near the desert now. Water was scarce, and he couldn't just wander off and hope to survive. Again, here Park depicts the Moors in the harshest of lights. King Ali is described as a clever and cunning and cruel man, toying with Park, whom he had absolute power over. Ali's people would take everything from Park, except for his compass, which he buried in the sand in his tent. By late March, Park would become ill, the result of not enough food or water. His captors had become bored with him, and he was often ignored, but this neglect would take a toll on him. Park would be forced to beg for food and water from the slaves in order to survive and without their mercy, he likely would have died. At one point during this time, he was so thirsty he walked to various wells begging for water, but no one would give him anything because he was an infidel and he would taint the wells. Finally, an old man let Park drink from a trough that had been set up for the cattle. When Park was healthy, he decided to take up learning Arabic. He found that it frustrated many of his captors that he could understand the words and they could not. For Park, small victories were important in times like this. At the beginning of May, the entire court of King Ali would move north as the war was threatening Ludomar. Ali and his people were semi-nomadic, driving their cattle and households from place to place, setting up tents in whatever place was most advantageous. It was around this time that Park would meet Ali's wife, a woman named Fatima. The queen seems to have developed some sympathy for Park, and in late May, when King Ali was planning to travel south to the town of Jara with his cavalry, Park petitioned her to allow him to go with the king. The king would agree, but reluctantly. It was a small victory for Park, and he would head to Jara with the king on May 26th. But the triumph would come at a price. King Ali would take Park's young companion, Demba, and make him one of his slaves. Park said that on the day Demba was led away, the two cried and then shook hands. Park would never hear from Demba again. Park's other companion, Johnson, was considered too old to be of value as a slave, so he remained with Park. Mungo Park would spend a month in the city of Jara, which was in the southern region of Ludomar. But by late June, the war was spreading. Remember King Daisy from Karda? His army was approaching Jara, and while Park and King Daisy had left on good terms, Park didn't trust that Daisy's soldiers would treat him as kindly. After all, his skin was much darker after months in the sun, and his beard was long and thick. Many people mistook him for a moor, and Daisy's men were killing moors. On June 28th, a group of Moors arrived with orders to take Park back to King Ali. Park figured it was now or never if he wanted to escape, so he slipped out of town early. 
Johnson helped Park with his escape, but the man refused to go any further. Park would give Johnson his papers and ask him to return them to Dr. Laley. Unfortunately, the papers would be lost, as Johnson, like Demba, was never heard from again. And thus Mungo Park set off into the African countryside alone. He was hundreds of miles away from any European. He reported that all he had were two shirts, two trousers, two pocket handkerchiefs, a hat, boots, a cloak, a compass, and his horse. He had nothing of value to trade, such as gold or amber or beads. Park decided to head east, further inland, toward the kingdom of Banbara, about a hundred miles away, where the Niger River supposedly could be found. So Park's great escape would turn kind of rather pathetic. He was only out about half a day before the Moors caught up with him. Luckily, they decided he wasn't worth bringing to King Ali. Instead, they just robbed him of his cloak and let him go, likely figuring he was going to die now that he was alone and without anything of value. The next weeks were terrible for Park. It was dry and he didn't know where to find water, which was critical in the arid environment. Also, he was often forced to travel at night to avoid being detected by the Moors. He was reduced to chewing on leaves of shrubs for moisture. He reported that at one point he was so parched that he became delirious, but was saved when it rained. It was also during this time that he was forced to beg to survive, and those that helped him were often those who had little to give, the slaves and the women, the poorest of the poor. As noted, Park seems to have had a genuine sympathy and respect for the Africans, in particular the women. These were the most downtrodden, and they seemed to help him the most. Finally, in early July, Park reached the kingdom of Bambera. Things were better here, the pursuit by the Moors ended and the people were friendlier, and he could move about without fear. He went with a group of travelers, mostly refugees fleeing the war. By mid-July, Park was told that he was close to the Niger River, and on July 20th he would reach the first of his goals as the Niger came to view at the town of Segu. Park wrote, quote, I saw with infinite pleasure the great object of my mission, the long-sought-for majestic Niger, glittering to the morning sun, as broad as the Thames of Westminster and flowing slowly to the eastward. End quote. As noted earlier, the Niger is unique as it flows east, away from the ocean. I recommend taking a look at a map of the Niger. I have put one at explorespodcast.com. So Park had found the Niger. Check that off the list. The source of the Niger, which the natives in the area called the Jaliba, originates in the Guinea Highlands to the west. Where Park had found the Niger, it flowed northeast into what is now Mali, toward the legendary city of Timbuktu. At Timbuktu, the Niger heads southeast before dropping straight to the south and discharging in a massive delta, called the Niger Delta, in modern-day Nigeria. The river itself is about 2,600 miles long, the third longest in Africa, and is fed by several other major rivers. No one knew where the river ended, and when Park asked, he was told that it runs to the end of the world. At this point, Park could have headed west, up the river, but another of his goals had been to reach the city of Timbuktu, so that is where he decided to go. But local politics are going to play a role in Park's life yet again. As noted, Park had reached the town of Segu, which was the capital of Bambara. But when Park tried to take the ferry across the river, he was told by a representative of the king not to cross. Park would be forced to wait several days, dejected and hungry and anxious about his future. He reported that a woman and her family took him in while he waited. They fed him and even sang him songs to entertain him. He would give the woman two of his four remaining brass buttons as a thank you. In the end, the king of Bambara, whose name was Mansong, would not meet with Park. The problem was that word of Park's presence had spread throughout the region, and the Moors were upset at Park's escape from Ludamar and suspicious of why he was actually in the region. And while Bambara was not a Moorish kingdom, the Moors were powerful here, and the king did not want to upset such people. 
Still, King Mansong did send Park a large number of cowrie shells to help him with his journey. The cowrie shell was a form of legal tender common in parts of West Africa at this time. This would allow Park to purchase provisions. So Park had found his river, but he did not have the protection of the local king going forward. He was alone, except for his horse. But resolute as always, Park decided to head down the river toward Timbuktu. As he went northwest along the Niger, Park ran into more and more problems. Word of his presence was spreading, and the local village leaders, called duties, shunned him for fear of angering the higher-ups, or perhaps because he was a white man. And as he moved closer toward Timbuktu, the presence of the Moors grew. Timbuktu was ruled by a king named Abu Abrahima. It was said to be a very rich city, but with every step, people warned Park to turn back. They said he would not be welcomed. Despite all the issues, Park continued to observe the world he was in. Moving down the river, Park noted that it widened, and there were islands where the natives would put their cattle to protect them from the lions. The lions were a real threat at times, as Park could not always find a village willing to shelter him, and he was forced to sleep in the open. One night, he was so desperate, he ended up pounding on the gates of a village in the middle of the night, as a lion prowled nearby waiting to pounce on him and his horse. Thankfully, they let him in. Speaking of Park's horse, on July 29th, in the village of Modibo, Park's horse, which was as malnourished as himself, lay down and would not get up. Park wrote that he felt like he should just do the same thing, just lay down and stay there. You get the feeling that he is near the breaking point. Instead, Mungo would push on, asking a man in the village to care for the beleaguered horse. And the next day, July 30th, he would head to the town of Silla. There, he determined that Timbuktu was about 12 days away. He had no horse, little currency, or anything of value to trade. And he was a white Christian heading into a Muslim land. Even Park could see things were bleak-looking. Thus, he decided it was finally time to turn around. Knowing Park, the decision was likely not an easy one. But as he writes about it later, he was pragmatic about it. Moving forward would have been suicide. The next day, Park would return to Modibo. He would find his horse, who, by the way, is never given a name by Park, still alive and able to walk after a couple days of rest. So Park and his horse would set out southwest up the Niger River. The return walk would be slow going because now that August had arrived, that meant that it was time for the rains. One night the rains were so violent, Park reported that 14 huts in the village he was staying at would collapse. On a different occasion, he would be forced to wait three days as the roads had become an impassable mess of muck and mud. Also, he had received word that the king of Bambara, Mansong, had people out looking for him, with orders to bring him back to the capital of Segu. The last thing Park wanted to do was be imprisoned again, so he bypassed the city. On August 20th, Park reported that he had his first good meal in weeks, when a villager asked Park to make him a Christian safi. A safi is like a charm, often an amulet. A person might have a safi made that would give them wealth or good luck, and that sort of thing. Park responded to the request by writing out religious scripture on a sheet of parchment, a sort of written safi, which greatly pleased the man. He gave Park rice and milk, as well as salt, which was quite valuable, in exchange for the service. On August 23rd, Park would reach the town of Bamako. He had thus traced the course of the Niger for about 300 miles. Bamako is the modern-day capital of Mali, and at this time it was a critical trading town, dealing primarily in salt. It was here that Park decided to leave the Niger. If he kept following the Niger upriver, he would go southwest, away from Gambia, where he had started. He wanted to strike out across the Jalankadu wilderness, where he could reach the Gambia River and then head to Pisania. Unfortunately, two days later, Park would be robbed yet again, losing virtually everything he had, including his hat, his boots, and his horse. 
Park said the only thing left were his shirt and trousers. Again, Park said that he just felt like lying down and dying. He was so discouraged. But he would keep going, and Park would reach the town of Sibadulu, where the local chief, or Manza as he was called, welcomed him and pledged to get back his property for him. But now it is time for Park to get sick again, because it is August, the rainy season, and soon he was overcome by a terrible fever, just like the previous year. Park would spend the early part of September in the nearby village of Wando, first enduring, then recovering from his illness. During this time, the Manza of Sibadulu made good on his promise, and he found and returned Park's items, including his horse. The horse, however, was so emaciated that Park would give it to the family that was sheltering him in Wando as a thanks for their kindness. He would send the Manza of Sibadulu the saddle as a way to repay him for all that he had done. By the middle of September, Park would be well enough to walk again. He cut his boots into sandals and set out west. Park would reach the town of Kamalia on September 16th. There he would meet the man that probably saved his life. That man was Karfa Tora. He was a Muslim Mandinka, called a Bushreen by the locals. The people of Kamalia didn't believe that Park was a white man, due to the rags he wore and the color of his skin, which was tainted yellow from his illness. They thought that he might be a Moorish spy. To prove he was a European, he read from a book of Christian prayers that Karfa possessed. Karfa Torah was a trader, dealing mostly in slaves, and when Park told Karfa what he intended to do, strike out west toward the Gambia River, the man informed him that it was impossible. There were too many smaller rivers he would have to cross, and the waters were too high this time of year. It would be many months before such a journey could be attempted. Karfa then let Park know that he would be heading west when the waters receded, and that he could stay with him until he was ready to travel, and then join him on his journey. Park did not really have much of a choice, as fever had set in again, but he was touched by the man's kindness. There was little value in helping Park, and he appreciated the man's aid. Despite not having any money, Karfa fed Park and had his slaves care for him. Park would agree to pay Karfa for all of his troubles once they reached Pisania. With time, the fevers would subside, but even then Park was a shadow of his former self. He would spend seven months in Kamalia, recuperating as Karfa waited until the time was right to head west. Karfa never wavered in his support of Park, and Park was always grateful to the man. One heartbreaking incident during this time happened in December. Park came upon a slave brought through Kamalia who was begging for food. After talking to the man, Park realized that the slave had provided him with food the previous year when he had been begging for it. The man had been captured in a recent war, his side losing, and the result was enslavement. Park got the man some food, but he could do nothing else. Regarding the slave trade, Park is mostly non-judgmental about the subject, even as he depicts some of the worst elements of the practice. But it's hard not to notice that he was aided by the slave trade and the people in the industry. Park had had a slave, Demba, provided for his journey. A slaver, Dr. Laidley, had helped him get started on the journey. Karfa, who is now saving Park's life, was a slave trader. The slave industry permeated society. But I think it's quite clear that Park did not approve of slavery. He often is referring to the wretched conditions of the slaves and the cruel treatment they had to endure. Anyhow, back to the story. On April 19th, Park would leave Kamalia, along with Karfa, in a caravan consisting mostly of slaves being taken to the coast, most likely to be sold to slave ships heading to the Americas. As I noted earlier, one of the tactics the slavers used was to trade a slave further and further away from his or her homeland, the idea was to get them far enough away that they could not survive in their environment if they escaped. If they did escape, they couldn't reach their homeland easily, as they didn't speak the language of the people around them or know people there, that sort of thing. It led to some painful moments for Park, as he witnessed slaves being bought or exchanged with someone from his caravan. 
Several times he describes the horror that strikes the man or woman as they realize they are being sold at that very moment and their fate is being altered in an instant. The next phase of Park's journey was a rugged one. Before him was the Jalankadu wilderness, hundreds of miles of rugged, sparsely populated expanse filled with rivers, mountains, and hills that would have to be crossed. The caravan would frequently have to sleep in the wild, as villages would be dozens or even a hundred miles apart. There would be threats from lines and bandits. But the caravan would plunge west for six weeks, and on June 2nd, 1797, Park arrived at the city of Medina, the capital of the Kingdom of Woolley, one of the first places he had come to when he had started his trek almost two years earlier. Park and Carfret would leave the slave caravan a short while later at the town of Jindi. On June 10th, not far from Pisania, he would see another European for the first time in two years. Park would learn that everyone thought he was dead. Here he also found out that Demba and Johnson had not returned. Park would reach Pisania later that same day. Dr. Laidley was gone from the trading post, but would return two days later on June 12th. Laidley, like everyone else, had thought Park killed by the Moors. At Pisania, Park would be able to clean himself up. He shaved his long beard and put on new clothes. Carfa was amazed at the transformation. He said that the loss of Park's great beard had turned him from a man to a boy. Park was, after all, still only 27 years old. As for Carfa, Park was so grateful for all the man had done for him, he doubled the pay he had agreed to give him, a reward for his service. It was strange, a Muslim slave trader with such sympathy for a bedraggled Christian, but Park would likely have died without the man's assistance. The two would depart as respected friends. So Park had returned to Pisania, and now it was time to head back to Europe. However, that was easier said than done. Ships to Europe were irregular, at best. With the rainy season approaching, Park was told that there likely wouldn't be another ship until the end of the year, six months, maybe longer. Park then decided that the long way to Europe was better than waiting. A few days after arriving in Pisania, he received word that a slave ship was in the vicinity and would soon depart for America. So, on June 17th, Park boarded the slave ship Charlestown, which was bound for the United States. Unfortunately for Park, Charlestown was delayed in departing from Africa as they waited for provisions to be brought on board. A fever would hit the ship, going through the crew as well as the slaves. Four seamen would die as well as the ship's doctor. Park would inherit the latter's job. After waning out the raiding season, Charleston would finally put to sea in October, with 130 slaves on board. The voyage across the Atlantic was a nightmare. It turned out the Charleston was a step above a derelict. She would take on water halfway across the Atlantic, and the slaves would be forced to work the pumps day and night to keep the ship from sinking. Charleston would finally put into port at the Caribbean island of Antigua after 35 days at sea. The ship would later be condemned by the authorities. On November 24th, Park set sail from Antigua aboard the Chesterfield. He would land in Falmouth, England on December 22nd. He had been gone two years and seven months. So Park had done it. He had returned home. He showed up at the home of his brother-in-law, James Dixon, on Christmas Day. No doubt it was the finest present a family could ask for, as everyone had thought him dead. Park's return would be a great story in England. The public was quite taken with the return of the gallant young explorer everyone had thought to have died. He had brought back information that people had been searching for for centuries. In the coming years, Park would marry Allison Anderson, the daughter of Dr. Thomas Anderson, who Park had apprenticed under as a teenager, and he would set out to write a book about his time in Africa, a book that would make him more famous when published in 1799. But Africa was not done with Mungo Park. The Niger River had been found, but no one had yet reached the fabled city of Timbuktu, and the mouth of the river was unknown as well. 
So next time on Explorers, we will conclude the story of Mungo Park as he heads back to West Africa on a new expedition. This one will be bigger and grander. Only we will see that bigger and grander does not necessarily mean better, and it does not mean success. Thank you for listening to the first part of Mungo Park and the exploration of the Niger River. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.